welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Matt Leader. And I'm Craig Dickinson. Today on the show, we're talking about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. Uh, as you guys know, Spider-Man No Way Home is right around the corner, and there's a very good chance that we'll be seeing, in fact, it's been confirmed, we're going to see at least a couple of characters uh, from this trilogy of films, and so we thought now would be an excellent time to revisit uh, the original Spider-Man trilogy. Uh, so, Matt, what are your uh, what are your overall thoughts on this Spider-Man trilogy? So, I, I think I'm going to start first with um, just my relationship to Spider-Man in general because it's one of the longest-running superhero, you know, franchises. Like I, he's one of the most well-known characters, really, in the world. Um, I happen to love Spider-Man uh, from the comics and grew up watching the first. Spider-Man movie uh, that we're going to talk about, um, Spider-Man 1, just for reference sake, uh, which was released in 2002. And uh, I still adore that movie. I think it's it's great. Um, I know <laughs> from conversations we've had with friends that uh, a lot of people love Spider-Man 2. And I don't necessarily agree. Uh, Spider-Man 3 is pretty widely panned. It's not a very good film. And I mostly agree with that. Um, I, I think there's elements that are, are really good. Um, so the trilogy as a whole, I think just goes downhill <laughs> after Spider-Man <laughs> one. And, you know, I'll, I'll get into more of the details about why I think that I think that, uh, you know, the MCU, right, is hugely successful. And I think uh, the first Spider-Man movie really kind of kicks off um, the the comic book craze. Uh, and I think for good reason. And, you know, we're, we're still kind of feeling the effects of that. And, uh, th you know, there's other superhero movies before this, but I think it's it's one of the bigger films in, in, box, in box office terms. It was kind of a smash hit. And it's very different. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really interesting because in comics you have runs by different authors, different artists, and that's kind of what you have with the Spider-Man movies or franchise as a whole. You've got uh, the Sam Raimi ones, which we're talking about today. Um, you have oh, who who directs the Amazing Spider-Man films? Uh, Mark Webb, Mark the appropriately Webb. named Mark Webb. Yeah, and then of course you've got the the Tom Holland ones. Um, and so it's like you, you've kind of got three different runs of the same character and they're all kind of their own separate, you know, the reboots, uh, as you might call them. I think that's really, I don't, you know, other than maybe Batman, I don't know if we've gotten another superhero who's gotten the kind of treatment and probably Superman too. Um, but on, on the Marvel side, you know, I think he's, that's pretty unique. And so it, it's fun to talk about and kind of compare all the different films. So we're going to take like a pretty bird's eye view of these films uh, because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, what are your overall thoughts, Craig? Yeah, you know, uh, I've always liked Spider-Man too. I mean, I grew up watching on reruns because I'm not that old, but the, uh, the 60s Spider-Man cartoon, uh, that was my first exposure to Spider-Man and seeing him on he like he was on the Electric Company on PBS, I think. So those are my two big things for uh, for Spider-Man introduction. And then I really liked the uh, the '90s uh, cartoon that was on Fox. I thought that was great. 
uh, very comic book accurate. And that was kind of that was essentially my Spider-Man that I really kind of adopted. And so this new one, you know, I say new now, uh, the 2002 one well, with Tobey Maguire was kind of I was comparing the, it to uh, the 90s cartoon. And so it never quite, I mean, I enjoyed it, but it was never quite my, in my wheelhouse the way it was for a lot of people. Uh, I guess, I mean, some of that's on me just because of expectations. You know, the, one of the big things that kind of stuck in my craw is the organic web shooters. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, what do you think about, did you enjoy the web shooters or how did you feel about that? It is weird <laughs> like, there's no, not really any two ways around that yeah it, it i don't think that's comic accurate i think it's always no. been like a mechanic like a little gadget right yeah um and of course like i said spider-man's one of the longest running marvel superheroes so there's always small differences and stuff variations sure i don't think that that has ever been in a comic where it's like come out of his wrists i don't even know how that would happen yeah. And then randomly throughout the trilogy, they just stop working. Yeah. And this is, there's not really much rhyme or reason for it. It just, because it, it makes sense if they're gadgets, like they would run out of web shooter. Yeah. Right? Which happens in the comics a lot. Right. Right. But that makes sense because it's, it's yeah. like a can of string cheese. It's like you get to the exactly. bottom of the can, like it's out. That's it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was the thing that always, always bugged me. The biggest, you know, the, the argument is, uh, Sam Raimi is on record as saying that, you know, a kid wouldn't be able to invent these, uh, these web shooters. And that's kind of the, the idea that's unbelievable to have a kid do that. And yet the suit that he has, that's my, that was another thing that drove me nuts. I'm like, where did he get this suit? It's ridiculously cool and mm -hmm. like super modern and fantastic. And like, it's clearly made somewhere like hand, you know, yeah. uh, this kid, <laughs> this poor kid, uh, cause he is, he's dirt poor, which is another thing I want to get into. There's no way he comes up with this suit. So that took me out of the movie more than mm. the fact that he would have had uh, mechanical web shooters. Well, and you, you mentioned but, kid, which is another point, because he's clearly not a child. <laughs> no, he's, he's not. clearly not middle-aged, but he's like yeah. he looks in his like mid-20s. Very old high schoolers <laughs> in this entire school. It's, uh, it's adult education. I mean, yeah. it's like they look as old as the teachers. The teachers, yeah. some of them almost look younger than the students. Fascinating. <laughs> so just one more quick thing on the web shooters. So I don't want to, it's not Sam Raimi's fault either. And I had thought it was James Cameron's fault because, you know, James Cameron had written an earlier draft, uh, which sounded bizarre, super violent, full of adult things and just not family friendly at all. Um, God bless James Cameron, but that he's, he was off uh, in his view of Spider-Man. But it comes from an earlier version where people thought, uh, this was when Canon Films actually owned uh, the rights to Spider-Man, that they didn't know anything about the character and thought that he was literally like a mutant spider uh, with like eight limbs. And so that's how it, come, it just kind of stuck from that version <laughs> and kind of evolved over the years and then, you know, shows up almost 20 years later in uh, Sam Raimi's film. So there's a long and storied history of the organic web shooters that starts from a misunderstanding who the character even is. Uh, so that I thought that's fascinating to me. Uh, I do have to say that, you know, overall I do enjoy the movie. I've already kind of trashed on it, but I, I, I do have a warm spot in my heart for, for Spider-Man. And I'm one of those guys that says Spider-Man two is that best of the series. So I'm, you know, we're going to have some discussion about that <laughs> and that's fine. Uh, I think, you know, there's, there's some legitimate reasons for that. 
uh, as we get deeper into the film. I think the trials that he has to go through uh, is what makes it more interesting for me. I like the costume design better. The Green Goblin costume always drove me a little bit nuts, especially when you have Willem Dafoe, who is has a very expressive face. Well, let, let, and, let's start with that. Like what? Because I love the Green Goblin costume from Spider-Man sure. One. So what? What was it that drove you crazy? Well, for one, it's all green. But I mean, he's the Green are, Goblin. I mean, no, I understand that. Okay, so it's all green. I mean, if and he has yellow. Okay, eyes. that's not hundred percent. I used to think it was all green. That's not. There's actually is some some coloring around in the torso and stuff that is a kind. It's not quite purple, but it's kind of there's shades. It's darker, right? It's not. It's not just the one green all the way through. The mask is the biggest thing. It's a great looking mask, except for there's no expression to it at all. And so, like the scene where he's, hey, you know, basically trying to bring Spider-Man alongside, and hey, come, we can be, you know, together. Like you can see Willem Dafoe's mouth moving through this already kind of frozen open jaw, and it's just bizarre. <laughs> just I, I, I just yeah. I mean, I, I don't. But, but you can't like see it. any of Spider-Man's reactions either. Yeah, but see, that's how <laughs> Spider-Man's always been. So, yeah, it's but a, isn't that kind of like isn't that? I, I know, you know, this is personal choice, personal preference. Yeah. You know, so don't get me wrong, but like that's kind of Green Goblin too, right? Like he's wearing a mask. Spider Man's yeah. wearing a mask. Well, I have I have other things, so <laughs> we'll we'll get in. So just some other just kind of big over, you know, like you said, bird's eye view, all of that. Uh thoughts on the trilogy. Lots of montages, mm-hmm. which is fun. Like the montages. Uh I, I'm always surprised how many guest stars essentially in in tiny little roles like you it's easy to forget elizabeth banks is in this octavia spencer is the one like there's no what's no junior division small fry or whatever she says at the ring announce uh at the wrestling place uh emily deschanel the lady that played bones in the you know in bones tv show has a tiny little part as the receptionist and number two with the pizza thing i'm not paying for those joel McHale's in it and just these tiny little parts you know the movie's 20 years old at this point so a lot of these people are kind of just getting their starts but there's some big name people in tiny, essentially glorified cameos uh, in this. Speaking of glorified cameos, Bruce Campbell, huge fan of Bruce Campbell. Uh, I was going to talk about this later, but now is as good a time as any. Has three very different parts in this, mm-hmm. and he's hilarious in all of them. Uh, and of course, he and Sam Raimi go back to like childhood, and he's you know the star of the Evil Dead series, and so it was fun. Just and I'd seen those movies first. Uh, Army of Darkness is still one of my favorite ones. We have to do Army of Darkness at some point. Uh, and so seeing Bruce Campbell was kind of like a nod. Hey, you guys watch those movies? Yep, here's Bruce Campbell again. It's kind of like a, he's a human Easter egg. The thing I will say, okay, so here's my big thing with number two. This is why I love number two, is the end. Mm-hmm. Because it's over, and then it's not. Then they go back to the Osborne mansion, and Willem Dafoe shows up again. Yeah. In the mirror, like in the vision that Harry's having, which... You know, growing up, it was like every time you had a villain, they died in the movie. Like Nicholson dies in Batman and then Danny DeVito dies in Batman Returns. And, you know, Zod died in the original Superman, Superman 2, actually. So you don't bring villains back. That's not how we do things. And he died in the first movie, so he's done. And then he comes back. You brought the actor back. It was massive. And then you have this thing that basically sets up, you know, Harry's transformation in the third movie. And watching it... And, I still get excited watching it. I'm still getting excited talking about it. And that's totally a thing that would be a post-credit scene now. You know, you do that the very end and it would be, a, oh my gosh, what a mind-blowing. And it was mind-blowing, but it's also like, 
I think they figured, like EMCU, Feige and, and company have figured out now that if you seed those things a little bit later, they have a little bit more power to them. Uh, but I just thought that was that was an amazing thing that like, no, we're not done. And it just kind of made you really want uh, to see the next one. So I thought that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I think. So I, I have to say this. I, I think this conversation is going to be overall like I don't think we're going to be as zoomed in on some of the details. Right. I think that number two, and we're kind of going out of order, but number two, the third act is really good. So mm. I'm with you on that. I think the first two acts, though, are are pretty messy. And they're not as messy as Spider-Man 3 was basically the whole time. Um, but <laughs> it honestly reminded me of a technique I sometimes uh, talk about with students when we're talking about writing narrative. And like when they're struggling to come up with ideas, you kind of brainstorm like what would happen, like what's the worst thing that could happen in this situation? And they just take that to a wild extreme because it's, I mean, just tiny little things where he and MJ are fighting and like he was like, man, I need a drink. And he pulls like the little martini glass off and it's empty. And it's just like, <laughs> there's yep. literally nothing in the whole first two thirds of the film that goes right for Peter Parker. And I just, I don't like it that much. And, and like he has his little like, well, I'm going to be kind of selfish and, and do what Peter Parker wants, not what, you know, Spider-Man and New York City need. I, it just felt really weak to me. Um, I, I think the moment that uh, Doc Ock kidnaps MJ, right, and the third act really kicks off, I think from that point on, it's, it's really pretty good. Um, it feels very like very much like a Spider-Man movie. I think if this were like a TV series and that were like an episode at the end of the season, like the series finale, I think that would be really cool. That hour or so chunk, I think is really good with the train, um, the, 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 the fighting, but I don't know. I, I just, I wasn't a big fan of man. Nothing is going right for Peter Parker. And I know that's kind of part of the story, right? That's the middle act. Well, well, but it's like Peter Parker is supposed to be the everyman. We're supposed to be able to relate to him. He has money problems. He's got relationship problems, right? But it's like this just feels like it, it was too much. And there were so many problems that it felt a little scattershot. It felt like a shotgun effect of everything's wrong rather than like a a solid emotional through line of trying to solve a specific problem. And you kind of have that with the relationship with him and MJ, but it just felt like there was so much like everything else going on. There was nothing going for Peter Parker. And, and I, I don't have any problem with people enjoy that. It it just did not work for me. It, it, It just felt like you got this thing with Doc Ock, you've got this thing with MJ and then a million other tiny little problems. And it's like, I don't know. It just felt unfocused, the first yeah. two-thirds of the film. I got gotcha. you. Uh, so I'm going to 
refocus this a little bit on on the aspects because I have some things that are specific to number two that I think will kind of help explain why I like it as well. Uh, there is an awesome setup uh, during Octavius's speech to introduce his, his invention. I don't know if you caught it this time, but it's bizarre the way they've set everybody up. It's it's so unique. You have Doc Ock on the far right, and then you have his wife behind him, but and in the middle, and then you have on the far left hand side, you have Doc Ock's assistant, and you have this slope essentially where he looks so much bigger than them. And it's really it's not usually it'd be rule of thirds where he'd be in the middle, and two people flanking him, but it literally slopes from top from uh, from right to left, which I thought was a really interesting way to kind of indicate that yeah he's in charge, but things are off balance, you know, it's kind of hinting like this, his machine is, is not going to work. Cause there are some things that are, that are not quite right with that. I just thought that was a fascinating, I'd, I'd seen this movie several times, uh, but just seeing that I was like, okay, that's when we talk about, you know, composition and how you set up a shot, that's the kind of thing that we want to point out because it is super unique. I don't think I've ever seen that before, at least not recently. Uh, so I thought that was amazing. I really like the Doc Ock character. I think he's the best villain that they have in the series. I think he's the most sympathetic. You know, they they take great pains to do that with, you know, the inhibitor chip, which is tragically tiny. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> and tiny completely chip. unprotected. <laughs> completely unprotected. Uh, and so you have him as, you know, he's this mentor figure for Peter, you know, at the beginning. You know, he has this great line. I'm just going to skip down to to that for just a second where he says intelligence is not a privilege, it's a gift. And I love that, that he is, you know, this guy who kind of not quite adopts Peter, but he takes him under his wing, right? And he's this guy that Peter can look up to and like, yeah, you know, this is stuff I can do with my life. I need to get my, you know, stuff together and show up to class and work hard and I can do things that will, uh, you know, help humanity, which is essentially what he's doing as Spider-Man too. He just needs to find a way to, to balance the two of those things. Yeah, uh, I think that's a great catch. Um, I think Doc Ock and Harry and Spider-Man are kind of an interesting trio because I think you could argue that Harry's also kind of a villain, like half of it's, it's kind of the intro into his villain of, of Spider-Man 3. But what bugged me about that is is right at the end when Doc Ock delivers Spider-Man, right? And Harry has his dagger and he's about to stab Spider-Man. He takes the mask off and he can't believe it's Peter. And he's like, you killed my father. Spider-Man doesn't explain what happened. He's just like, I don't no. have time. I'm gone. I know. Yeah. And and that is a pet peeve of mine. It bugs the hell out of me where conflict is created because people won't have a conversation. Like it's yeah. one thing if they have the conversation and Harry won't believe him. And that, you know, that, that kind of does come up eventually. But I just feel like, you know, these are best friends. Would Harry not believe him? I, I, I don't know. And so. <sighs> yeah, that always bugged me too. But I see, I put the, the blame of that on the first movie. Yeah. So it's battle, it's battle around. Because, yeah. you know, you know uh, uh, Norman Osborn says, don't tell Harry. <laughs> and then he doesn't. And I'm like, how much trouble? You know, it's, again, I'm going back to pitch meeting. So the movie can happen. Yeah. Like, you, you, how much trouble could you have saved yourself if you'd have just been like, look, here's what happened. And it's like, look at his wounds, dude. They're like from the goblin glider, which you end up getting <laughs> that, you know, with the, the butler finally 
fastest up and number three, hey, I clean your father's wounds and here's what. Well, it's like, dude, where did you, and the butler, it's your fault too, man. <laughs> how many years have you been sitting down and, you know. But, but the other thing is, thing. so like you mentioned how Harry right at the end when we have uh, Willem Dafoe, right? Uh, yeah. We have Norman Osborn come back for a very, very brief cameo, which I enjoyed as well. But I also think it was really stupid. The fact that he's like, Norman is like, join me, right? Harry, you know, that's the Vader scene, right? Join, yeah. join your father and we can rule the empire together. And Harry's like, no. And then I think he throws the dagger through the window or the, yep. the mirror and yeah. it shatters and he goes in and he's like, oh, that's a really cool mask. Okay, I'm evil now. And it's like, that's it. That That's the whole, because he says, I'm not going to betray my friend. And then, like, what what changes? He looks at the mask and he sees like the the little the bombs, right? And it's like, oh, okay, now now he's changed. Maybe he just feels trapped by the legacy of his dad. I don't know. (laughs) I hear what you're saying. I you know, it's like I can't do this because I don't have the resources, and now I do. (laughs) It's a valid point. So, I. It's it's so difficult to talk about all three of these movies and they get like hyper specific about like one little aspect because in a lot of ways these three movies really are they're very much a trilogy like they very yeah, closely they follow are. one another um, so like stylistically right all three of them feel pretty similar you can it, yeah. it's very you can tell you know Sam Raimi is is putting these things together um, they're very campy they are very silly movies which is what I enjoy most about them. I think they strike a pretty good balance. They are, I mean, they are campy and that's kind of Raimi's style, but they're not self-deprecatingly campy. Uh, I, I think they kind of are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, that's fine. Someone, someone pointed out it's not, that it's not Batman 68, you know, 66. Okay. No. Yeah. But okay. it, it's very much, it feels very campy. Like some of the, the previous Batman movies, like it's not like Batman forever campy, to me, I feel like I see the influence of of that camp sure. in these. It's like a pale reflection of the camp in those movies. You don't get any of that camp in um, the the MCU Spider Man films, and so to me, it seems much starker when you're contrasting like um, Far From Home versus uh, Raimi's Spider Man movies. I think though that the camp is fun. <laughs> And I think that's that's the biggest thing is all three movies have fun. They're not boring movies. No. I think they get progressively messier as you go. Um, but like one thing, trying to refocus a little bit and come back to some of the specifics, um, yeah. like camera work wise, I really enjoyed, and you see this a little bit in all three, the kind of self-reflective moments of the characters, whether it's Sandman in the third one, um, I think it's it's a pretty well shot, like him when he transforms into sand and you got the, mm-hmm. the score and the music. Uh, I love when Norman Osborn is in his house and he's like waffling between becoming the Green Goblin or, or you know, staying Norman. And you have the <laughs> you have the scene in with the mirror, right? Yeah. Where he's like walking towards Such the mirror. Such a good scene. Right. Yep. But it's great camera work because mm-hmm. one thing I love about movies is that you have that you can have that interior dialogue but have it like illustrated through the camera like visually you can illustrate this 
And I think that's a really tough thing to pull off. Dune, the book, which, you know, we kind of have been talking about the last couple of weeks, has a lot of introspective, a lot of character thought, right? And I don't know if there's really a great way of showing that because it is, a, it's a little campy having Willem Dafoe making the Green Goblin, you know, face walking into the mirror. I think it works really well, yeah. uh, but that's not something I would expect someone like Denis Villeneuve to do in a 2020 film, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it totally fits with this trilogy. And I, like, I think that's like really, really good camera work to kind of illustrate that. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. I, I didn't have that one, but I, I 100% agree. Um, the big thing I had for for camera work was the the amount of shot counter shot setups that you had that were mainly uh, Peter and MJ, where he's continually trying to not tell her that he loves her, mm-hmm. and then try and then in the second one trying to convince her that he does and to give him a chance, and then and then, and then he refuses he to admit later on oh. in the second one. So it's yeah, that Kills me. is. Yeah, it's horrible. Um, but it's like they specifically set those aside. There's, uh, I mean, you get one in three in the third movie with with Peter and, and Harry, and, and when Harry's having the pie, that's so good. Uh, and then also in the second movie, my favorite one actually, because the ones with Peter and MJ kind of drag on because mm-hmm. it is, oh, it's, it's this again. Like, hey, we've got the same setup. It's going to be that conversation again. Uh, is the one where he's telling her that he's responsible or feels responsible for uncle Ben's death. And it's brilliant. I think that's the best setup in, in maybe the entire trilogy, definitely in the film uh, where it just lingers on Peter's face as he's talking and then flashes to her just once and then back to him. Like it's usually it's, you know, it's intercut a lot more frequently when you see those shot counter shots and it's, he's just talking. And I, the way I get that is, She's here, and she never says anything in the scene too, which is brilliant. Is that he's talking and she's kind of tuned him out. You know, he's just talking, he's saying stuff, he's telling him more stuff, and she's she doesn't want to hear it anymore. And then she just gets up and leaves. And it's I I think that's uh, I think that's why that's a valid interpretation of the, of the way that's set up because it's it's very you know it's going to be talked about this in Jaws too, right? Where um, Alex Kittner's mom's talking to uh, Brody, and it's just her. Even though it's shot counters, it's almost exclusively her talking, mm-hmm. you know, but for a different reason in this case. And you were talking about May, right? The conversation. Yeah. Here. And yeah. okay, I'm glad you brought that up because I think while it's shot very well, I think the films really do May. Um, they, they do May dirty. I mean, <laughs> I don't think she comes <laughs> off very well. No. Because May is supposed to be this like, ultra loving forgiving just this pure force of good not that she's not a person not that she doesn't have feelings and stuff and it's it's not my my biggest gripe with the film but it it just doesn't quite it feels kind of cold-hearted to just leave him like that and it feels cold-hearted when he comes back when she's moving and he's like can we please talk about this and she goes ah forget it it's nothing it's like, no, it's not. It's, it's water under the bridge or whatever. <laughs> water over the dam. Like what, it, you know? Yeah. And so it, that to me, it, it doesn't quite feel as, as generous, as warm hearted as I would expect May to be. And, and for that matter, I think MJ is a terrible person. <laughs> and in Spider-Man 3, I think 
uh, Peter Parker is a terrible person yeah. when he quiz- kisses, kisses Gwen for like no reason at all. They'll leave the little kid new. Yeah. No, Spider-Man, no. And, I love that so much. And they, they play that for a joke, which sure, yeah. right? That's, that's But it makes sense because I'm going, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> but like, there's no buildup. There's no, it, it's like they did it just to have conflicts between him and MJ. But it's like that, it, uh, it kills me. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, well, because part of, ahead. part of what I love about Peter Parker is that he has relationships, right? But it's not just it's not like a rocky relationship all the time yeah there's there's parts where it's like okay we're good and they're going through normal things it's not normal that you're about to uh propose to someone and then you go kiss a random stranger you know what i mean I do. <laughs> yes it made no I, sense i can imagine all. and so all yeah. the conflict all of that stuff even though i love the 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 restaurant scene where he's waving the waiter uh, or the way the waiter's waving to get the champagne yep. and then he's like stop stop, stop go back and it yep. happens a couple of times and i thought that was one of the funnier you know parts of this trilogy but it's like i i didn't care because peter parker you deserve this you're an idiot but then <laughs> mj is constantly going back and forth she's not supportive at all in spider-man 3 right so yeah. what i do like because I, I wasn't a huge fan of all you know, the constant pouring on on Peter Parker and Spider-Man throughout Spider-Man 2. So I did like the change that people were actually happy about Spider-Man and Spider-Man 3. Like, they're kind of warming up right. to him as a, as a community, right? But then it's like, MJ is jealous of Spider-Man. That's not being supportive. You should be happy that Spider-Man is being embraced by the city. It doesn't mean you can't feel jealous. It doesn't mean you can't feel bad. But it's like, she treats Peter horribly. Uh, for no reason, really. It's like <laughs> having that conversation early on in Spider-Man 3. And she's like, I'm, I'm feeling terrible. You know, the critic, you know, wrote that uh, my voice can't even go past the first row. And Peter's like, oh, you know, you're going to be fine. He's trying to be encouraging. You know, I have my critics too. The Daily Bugle, you know, talks trash about me all the time. You can't let it get you yeah. down. And she's like, it's not about you. It's about me. And it's like, are you a child? See, I totally get that though, because I mean, there is a thing where, you know, we're both married. We understand that sometimes your wife just wants you to listen and not try and fix the problem, right? Em- empathy, empathy doesn't mean here's, here's something crappy from my life that I can share with you too. Sometimes it's just like, yeah, those guys are jerks. Or do you want me to be mad with you? Because I can do that. See, that would have been a funnier line that, that, yeah. that would have been better. But I, it, it just like Peter Parker's an idiot in the third film out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, Harry isn't really the best for, you know, friends throughout all the trilogy. These people are horrible people. Yeah. They're all kind of terrible. I mean, Peter Parker for the most part, other than kind of the kiss is, is pretty fine. Right. Yeah. And like him acting out with the symbiote, that that's kind of there's something else going on with them. So it's like that kind of makes sense. Yeah. But it's like it doesn't feel like Peter Parker at, at that moment. But everyone else is pretty consistently terrible, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to hold off. I'm going to redirect this. A little bit. This is so this is so fun. Uh, but I, I have so many things that are just like shotgun. You mentioned shotgun earlier. Yeah. That's where my brain is at this point. Yeah. Um, and that's I'm going to go back to my note for a second uh i want to talk about color just really fast mm-hmm. and i love the fact that his suit is red 
and blue, super bright, which is fantastic, comic accurate. You know, we mentioned uh, that this isn't the first big comic book adaptation, uh, but it's kind of the one that, like, everything after this, like, then it was, you know, Hulk and Daredevil and just get, and then this MCU shortly after, mm -hmm. Fantastic Four. Um, all these kind of more closely comic accurate adaptations. So, you know, we'd had Batman in 89 with a black suit, not blue and gray. The X-Men was probably the worst um, offender when it came to, you know, we don't trust the source material as far as like the looks of the characters and kind of playing around with some of the things where this one was like, nope, we're going in, you know, he's going to be bright red and blue. Who cares? Uh, but I wanted to point out something that I noticed about the symbiote, which I thought I had missed it before, which is obviously black and it's a cool looking suit. And I'm, that's how it kind of started in the comics. Hey, this cool black suit. And then later on it's retconned into, no, this is an alien symbiote and it's bad that this is happening is that the symbiote waits. It doesn't take him over until it is – both both he, both Peter uh, and Eddie Brock kind of give it permission mm -hmm. in the sense they're looking for revenge in each case. And at that point, the symbiote's like, oh, that's, that's all I was waiting for. And I thought that was a brilliant mirror. And that's one thing I want to talk about a little bit when we get to characters a little bit more. I liked – the way they set Eddie Brock up as very much a foil for Peter, that he's kind of like that mirror image. Uh, and so they have a lot of the same insecurities and a lot of the same issues. And, you know, the symbiote waits in both cases for the exact same thing. It's not just like, because the symbiote had been in Peter's apartment for a while. a while. Yeah. You know, and it's only at the point where he's like, I need to do something about well, Flint Marco and then, you know, I'd get revenge for my uncle's uh, uncle's death and then it takes over, so... I just thought that was a kind of a cool kind of rhyming thing they had with both the characters. I will also say that um, the movies can be surprisingly brutal at times. Uh, the scene that I guess I should say there's two, actually two moments. They're basically the same. Um, the the little bombs that Green Goblin has towards yes. the end, especially in Spider-Man 1, and it explodes like right in front of Peter. It slows down slow-mo. You can see all the, the shrapnel and you can see Spider-Man's face turn and everything. That whole kind of scene and the abandon, I'm not quite sure what it was, but after the bridge, um, mm -hmm. it kind of takes it up a notch, which I think is great, you know, for kind of that, that final act of the film. Uh, and that kind of happens again in towards the end of Spider-Man 3 uh, with Harry. And so it's like there are moments when it kind of elevates itself, uh, I think, just cinematically to something. They, they can take it to another notch. And some films don't do that very well, where all the action kind of feels the same. Um, I, I think you could even say that of, of filmmakers we think are who are really good. Uh, Dune, uh, for everything positive about it, I was thinking about this. A lot of the action kind of feels tonally very similar. Um, you know, I think of some other... Uh, films, uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring jumps to mind where, um, you know, there's, there's some violence, there's some action with the, the Nazgul, the ring race chasing them. Right. But then when they get to Moria, all of a sudden, when the orcs come crashing through the door, um, things change and it becomes more dramatic and more, uh, explosive. And then you also have like at the beginning of Spider-Man three, where you have Harry come out of nowhere and it feels more like a cartoon fight, you know? <laughs> yeah. Which I didn't mind because really the tone of the film is, like I said, pretty, it's, they're pretty silly movies. And so I was pretty okay with that. 
But then it's also like, oh, wow, they can really turn up the violence a little bit. Because I, I noticed it was PG-13. And I don't know if it really deserves that. I don't know. No. I, I feel like it's in the vein of, of Star Wars, where it's like a softer PG-13. Uh, but then it does get kind of brutal at the end of Spider-Man 1, where it's like, oh, okay, I, I could kind of maybe see where they went with that. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I meant to mention this earlier, uh, the end of the first movie mm -hmm. is it's kind of restrained in the way that they do this this final battle. And I always forget that it, when I'm watching the, when I'm watching the film and they have the great scene when she's up on the bridge and, uh, you know, he has to make the choice between, you know, saving her and the tram car full of kids. And there's a great shot there too, where they show in his eyes, literally what he has to, you know, pick from Mary Jane in one eye and uh, the kids in the other. Uh, and then you have, you know, and both in the first two movies, you also have like the New Yorkers step up, mm -hmm. which is kind of cool, right? Yeah. They're throwing stuff at the goblin and then they essentially save Peter from the, at the train, you know, and they have that, I think that's a great scene too. Um, but then, then you have this final battle with Peter and the goblin and it's not up on a top of a building. There's no blue sky beam. Like it's just like brutal hand to hand combat. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it feels more gritty yeah. more grounded because they do that. And it's like for this these two, you know, a flying character and one who swings from buildings that you're going to fight on the ground at the end uh, is an interesting, I think, kind of a bold choice. Well, and I, I kind of love movies that that take it kind of and keep it small, as it were, um, because <laughs> I think a lot of superhero movies struggle with that, actually, where it's like uh, the blue sky beam fits in a movie like The Avengers because it's a team up, right? Big world threatening disasters and stuff and villains makes sense but i kind of love the little ones that are a bit more personal and spider-man as a character through all his forms and in medias that's what i love about him is that he has problems that are more human and and that like you said at the end is gritty and it's real and it's just two people going at each other i will also say because it reminded me is uh, this trilogy has some great web slinging like mm -hmm. him swinging around New York, I think there's a lot of great yes. shots, a lot of great action of him using different tools and different things uh, to jump off of rubble, to dodge rubble, dodge traffic, all that kind of stuff. And I think for a Spider-Man uh, trilogy, I think it does really good at that. So uh, I'm going to use that as a segue into sound effects mm -hmm. because I do like the thwipping sound. <laughs> Which is, I mean, you have to generate that. That's not a normal thing. That's great. I really liked the very loud spider bite when it bit him in the in the lab or the at the museum uh, early in the in the first film and uh, the spidey sense. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I like the sound, but talk about things that are inconsistently used. The spidey sense, ridiculous, mm -hmm. right? Second film, uh, he's riding the bike and they're about to run him over. Nope, you don't hear it. Uh, when Doc Ock's machine goes haywire. Right before that, don't hear it. Everybody knows it's going to go bad. But when Doc Ock throws a car at him, then it goes off. When Harry comes up behind him in the third movie, like you mentioned earlier, comes out of nowhere, doesn't see that coming. Which you can kind of explain some of the earlier ones because he's developing his powers. But after he's like fully accepted that he's Spider-Man, which I'm going to talk a little bit about this later, that kind of seems like it's psychosomatic when he loses his powers mm -hmm. a little bit. Like he's got some choice in the matter. He's fully accepted he's Spider-Man. So in the third movie at the beginning... He should have seen him coming. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, I completely you know, agree. He, he doesn't with the symbiote, but that's comic accurate. I didn't, you know, so that's that's not a big deal. Um, 
I did love my I think my favorite sound though, actually, because it is it's a character thing, and you should dig this because it's a character thing, uh, is that it's the church bell that frees Parker from the symbiote. So you have like kind of this redemption motif that's happening here. He's in a church, you know, it's like confessing his sins and being redeemed in this, in this instance. I thought that was uh, a brilliant choice. Um, you know, for sounds, I think the thing that struck me most were all the screaming women. <laughs> if, <laughs> I'm convinced that's why Kirsten Dunst got the job. Cause she is really good at screaming. Uh, I don't know about the rest of it. <laughs> Someone mentioned this and I had heard this before going, you know, like rewatching the movies and I couldn't stop hearing it. It was, it's just, it's just everywhere. Constant screaming. Um, Mary Jane does it. Uh, just everyone. And along those lines, uh, and this is also kind of tied to, um, you know, the camera work as well. I, I almost feel like the second movie takes a break. There's like an interlude right after Doc Ock goes to the hospital. And it's just like, okay, we're going to have a five-minute horror short film right here. Yep. And all the sound Evil work, dead. all the camera yep. work is just straight horror. Yeah. And it kind of feels out of place. Like, it <laughs> it it doesn't feel like the rest of any of the movies. It, no, it, it doesn't. doesn't. It feels very Sam Raimi, it, <laughs> Yes. But it doesn't, like, it, it stands out so much. And along with that, we, we forgot to mention, you mentioned montage. But not in Spider-Man 1, I think almost exclusively, all like the flashing things will flash a picture of a spider or a skull randomly right. on the screen. Yep. And that's also kind of weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> Sure. I, like when he's transforming yeah. into Spider-Man? Yeah. yeah. And it like, I get it. But at the same time, it's like, it's just different. Gotcha. Uh, the music... Uh, for this film. I mean, I, I love Batman 89, always have. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw that Danny Elfman was doing the theme for this, I was very excited. I don't like it, the theme for Spider-Man, nearly as much as the Batman theme. I don't think it's remotely as good, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did notice that it's used almost as frequently. Mm -hmm. It's used quite a bit. And so now that I know what to listen for, I've enjoyed it a lot more. Uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, something good's going to happen. Spider-Man's swinging into action. There it is. So I thought that was great. Uh, I love that they use uh, the Spider-Man 67 cartoon theme like diegetically so he gets to hear it's it. So I think that's silly. hilarious. <laughs> it's awesome. Like that one little – The one lady. The one Asian yeah. lady. That he's just like, what is happening here? Yeah. Uh, speaking of montage, raindrops are falling on my head oh, in, in the second so one. So bad. So good. And then the freeze frame. Like they know <laughs> – see, this. So you're talking about campy. This is That's the campiest thing for me. Yeah. Uh, but like it's totally self-aware campy. And, that, and, and, so and that's kind of what I mean by I like, because we talked about this at the beginning. It's like, yeah. oh, they're going on the, like, they're leaning into the campiness. Yeah. Lean into the cringe. Yeah. They really are. As Justin Eldon would say. Yeah. Uh, I noticed this time too that um, both Sandman and the Symbiote have a theme, which is pretty great. And so you get that, uh, you know, it's very foreboding when you hear the Symbiote theme, like Peter's, he's going to do something bad. Like that's when you, I don't think you hear it with, with, uh, with Venom actually, but with, with Spider-Man when he's got the black suit on, you do hear, or when he's about to, uh, which is, which is kind of cool. My favorite thing with the, the music, um, the Spider-Man theme that Danny Elfman makes is fantastic. I love it. It feels Spider-Man to me. Um, I didn't notice though, and I believe it's in Spider-Man too, that they actually use kind of a 
creepy version of the Spider-Man theme um, for, I think, Doc Ock. Um, and I could be a little wrong. <laughs> Another thing with watching all three movies, like so close, <laughs> they kind of blend, right? They, they do. Uh, but I kind of liked that using a different version of the Spider-Man theme for his kind of nemesis. Um, yeah. And, and just changing the, 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 you know, I'm no musician, but changing the instrument, their tonality, whatever it might be, but just adding like it's, it's, it's taking that theme and then tweaking it just a little bit to make it feel off, make it feel strange and dangerous. Um, and I, I don't really recall another movie doing that off the top of my head. I couldn't think of one. I know it's probably happened in Star Wars. Um, yeah, he's all constantly building light motifs right. off of other light motifs, but but most of the time, you know, they have their own separate little uh, light motif. You know, the villain does. So I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. Yeah, I should mention too um, that Elfman did not do the music for number three, so mm -hmm. there is a difference. But you have so you have Christopher Young who also worked uh, with Raimi on The Gift and did a bunch of horror movies like Hellraiser and The Grudge, Exorcism, Emily Rose, and some things like that. So clearly knows what he's doing. Clearly knows how to, clearly knows how to write scary music, uh, and did I think a great job using Elfman's music, uh, and then also adding to it mm -hmm. with both those themes that we mentioned. As far as um, performances go i'm just going to straight out say that i don't like toby Maguire. <laughs> uh i think he's i mean he's obviously he's old which that I mean, that's fine i mean I, I grew up in again i grew up in the 80s where teenagers were like 26 years old all the time that's how it worked until dawson's creek came along like nobody was age appropriate uh i think he's appropriately nerdy as parker but he's just not cool as spider-man and to me spider-man's always been especially like snarky you know, with the sarcasm and, and being super witty and come with the uh, ripping on villains and stuff like that. He doesn't do that, like hardly at all. And so like I'm missing that part. Like he's a fine Parker, but Spider-Man, he's just not, he's not cool enough. And he doesn't change his voice and he's got a kind of high-pitched voice and that always bugged me. I, I think all of the main actors uh, take turns doing better and worse jobs acting throughout the film. <laughs> And, that, and that's kind of where it, it they feel very silly and campy for me, where at times Toby Maguire will reach for that emotion, especially when he's talking to uh, Mary Jane. But it's like, oh, it's cringy yeah. and it does not work. <laughs> and then um, James Franco as Harry, same thing. I, I, I feel like he's largely fine in Spider-Man 1. And then it kind of wavers like it it, it yeah. just seems like his acting kind of takes a nosedive starting in spider-man 2 and yeah it he speaks and i don't believe him like it just it doesn't quite work um there are two actors who i think just categorically were great and that's ben parker i i think he's in a very small part of the film but he very much feels like ben uh that speech in the car where he's talking about, I think it's a little unfair. He's been a little harsh with Peter um, and his fight with, I think it's Flash Thompson, right? Correct. And, yes. you know, but it's like, that's very believable that parents would be like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, and that's kind of a, a thematic lesson for Spider-Man. Um, but that little exchange between Tobey Maguire and um, Cliff Robertson, who plays Ben, uh, about, he's like, you know, I know I'm not your father. Well, could trying to be. Yeah. It's like that's a very emotional moment. And it works so perfectly with 
plot-wise, you know, how that kind of pushes Spider-Man to become who he is. So I think that's all like, really well acted. Um, and uh, J. Jonas Jabinson, J.K. Simmons, is fantastic yeah. throughout every single movie. It's to the point where I hear J.K. Simmons' voice, even when I read the comic version of Jameson, I hear his voice, like, speaking. I think he is absolutely perfect. And I was super happy they brought him back for the Tom Holland one uh, right at the end. Yes. Yeah, J.K. Simmons is great mm -hmm. in everything. Uh, I, I enjoy him. I, I, I think that that scene you mentioned earlier with Uncle Ben and, and Peter is a great scene, too. And it's, it's, it's almost like the other films of... Uh, you know, the MCU version and also the Mark Webb versions of kind of like, well, we're not even going to touch that yeah. scene. Like, let's just leave it. Yeah. Like, that's canon. I don't care what, you know, we're not going to use that phrase. You know, with great power comes great responsibility, which, I mean, that's Spider-Man in a nutshell, probably the best line in all of Spider-Man media in my probably. opinion. Probably. Uh, yeah, they just leave it alone. Mm -hmm. I do want to, I've always wondered why, why are Uncle Ben and Aunt May so old? <laughs> that bugs me because i mean i do like his performance for the most part um but when he's monologuing about the want ads that always drove me nuts too I'm like he's so old he's talking to himself while he's reading the newspaper even computers need analysts these days <laughs> well it just feels like an early 2000s movie like that, <laughs> maybe that's what it yeah is. I, I think it just hasn't aged very well it, no it hasn't like unlike his aunt and uncle yeah <laughs> who've aged quite a lot <laughs> no they're good i think I think Alfred Molina is also very good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, and I, and think I think Thomas Hayden, uh, Thomas Hayden Church is, is very good too. Mm -hmm. I think he's very authentic as just a guy in a no win situation. I, I think, I, I yeah. Think I, I think um, um, Sandman is, is totally fine. Um, I, I yeah. will say that Alfred Molina is, is pretty good as, as, as um, Doc Ock. So my big question then is Topher Grace. What do you think about his performance? I think he's fine. Okay. Yeah, I do too. I think he do, he's doing what he was given. Yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier that he's, and this is not not my opinion. This is what they've said. You know, they set him up. They kind of revisit, you know, uh, redid Eddie Brock, very different than he is in the comics, to be the kind of this mirror image of, of Parker. And I feel like he is. He's very close. You know, his performance is kind of based on, you know, a kind of mutated version of Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. uh, very arrogant. Um, kind of, you know. A little bit disconnected from reality, it seems, especially when he's talking to Gwen Stacy. Uh, I thought Bryce Dallas Howard was was fine in the film, even Same. though the character is essentially uh, just like human complication. That's all she is. That she's just literally just there to cause drama. Yep. She doesn't really have a personality. She's a plot point, um, but she's fine in it. She's Bryce Dallas Howard's always good, uh, and she's fine in this too. Just you know, doing what you're given. I mean, that's we talked about this before. You can only do what the director and the script are giving you. Did you have uh, any other lines of dialogue that you really liked from you know, all three of these movies? Honestly, no. Like, none of them. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I mean, you already mentioned uh, Ben's line. And, you know, and there's, like, little moments that, like, I find, like, funny and amusing and stuff. Well, I'll, pull, I'll put one in that, um, that I had missed many times, but it's, it makes me laugh all the time. J.K. Simmons. As Jameson says, guy named Otto Octavius winds up with eight limbs, four mechanical arms, welded right into his body. What are the odds? 
<laughs> so great. Okay. So thank you for reminding me. Basically everything J- Jameson says is fantastic. <laughs> and so you could you could pull out each one of his scenes. Yeah. Um and and they're all amazing. But I, I don't think they're like quote worthy like as in yeah. like it's not like super inspirational or amazingly no. well, you know, written, but they are like his scenes are amazing. So that's that's yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that is very much a, like a on the nose thing do you have a favorite line I, I i recognize that i i really liked you know the aunt may speech um you know about holding on a second longer as a hero in all of us that's great and then the last line you know it's interesting that this is not was not planned third movie was not planned to be the end of a trilogy but the fact that mm-hmm. you have the first movie ends in a funeral and the last the third movie now ends in in a funeral it that feels very much like, like the, the beginning end. and the end, yeah. right? And then he has this great voiceover, which I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and read. Peter says, "Whatever comes our way, whatever battle we have raging inside us, we always have a choice." My friend Harry taught me that. He chose to be the best of himself. It's the choices that make us who we are. We can always choose to do what's right. It's not quotable necessarily. <laughs> no. It's very long. But I do but like I think the it's profound, idea, and it. I like the message yeah. of it. Yeah. So I, I was like, oh, that's nice. I like that. And it feels there's a finality to it. Yeah. And I, and I think it's an appropriate ending for the trilogy. Like to kind of, is is that the is that the line at the end of Spider-Man 3? So that's, yeah, that's the voiceover at the end of Spider-Man 3. Okay. And then they go to the club, which to me feels kind of tacked on. Yes. But uh, don't all three movies have like, beginning and end dialogue like narration voiceovers i believe they yeah, do. So that, yeah no i think they do <laughs> so that's yeah that's, no, also this, that's me peter parker but, so yeah. it's not necessarily a line uh but i'll i'll throw this out and you already mentioned it briefly but the new yorkers in spider-man's one and two i think are great yeah. and they have some yeah. some good lines of like if you're gonna mess with spider-man you're gonna mess with like all of us yeah. and if you're going to get to him, you're going to have to go through me and me and me, that kind of thing. Not quotable, uh, but I do think that those are some of those heroic moments of like, oh, normal people can also be heroic, uh, which I think is something that's very special to the superhero genre of showing that anybody can kind of be heroic. So I enjoyed that. And again, not necessarily a quote um yeah i remember that being surprised by that like i kind of came out of nowhere like that these you know somebody's throwing something who's throwing that at the goblin and it's like oh yeah it's new york <laughs> like yeah dude yeah like we're involved in this and you're trying to pick on some kids and it's not cool and like yeah that feels authentic to me mm-hmm. like if you were to be a supervillain in new york you got other people to deal with uh i think that as far as facial expressions go my favorite thing the most significant thing i love that they do this is at the end of the second movie Mary Jane's happy. She, you know, runs away from her wedding, which again, horrible person, right? <laughs> That's what uh, I'm talking about. She just shows up in his apartment and she's like, this is how it's going. It's time for someone to save you. And that whole, whole spiel. Whole spiel. And then uh, she says, go get him, Tiger, which is awesome. Like, you're like, yeah, I'm feeling good. And the music's pumping. And then the music like changes and you see her face and it's kind of like, yeah, this is what I bought in for. Right. This is not now. This is my life. This is what I chose. And but you can see that there's almost like an instant regret mm-hmm. to it, which I think is 
I mean, I've kind of ripped on Kirsten Dunst quite a bit in this episode, but I think that is a really, really good piece of acting on her part where she says a lot just with her face. So one, <laughs> for one James quote, Peter Parker yeah. says, Spider-Man wasn't trying to attack the city. He was trying to save it. That's slander. Jameson says, it is not. I resent that. Slander is spoken and print is liable. <laughs> <laughs> Love that so much. So that That's probably... If I have to pick one, that's probably my favorite joke that he yeah. has. So good. Uh, I cannot not talk about the strutting down the street in Spider-Man 3. <laughs> you know, the little dance <laughs> no, that we were. And I, I love the fact that my kids uh, entered the Spider-Verse, which we will do at some point. Mm -hmm. Saw that first. And so They're like, oh, it's when they saw Spider-Man Spider-Verse. <laughs> yes, they did. That's exactly what they did. So good. My wife, we were watching, you know, rewatching it. My wife goes, and that's how we found out Spider-Man was the serial killer. <laughs> it, and I think that's almost a perfect note to end on is that dance, because in some ways that kind of encapsulates this whole thing. I, I think that the movies are are so silly. The acting is is like a seismograph and an earthquake going up and down. Yeah. Same with the script. I think the action is, is pretty pretty good, actually, overall, uh, throughout all three films. Um, but I still like them. I, I still like the movies. Yeah. And I'll rewatch. I'll rewatch the first two anytime. Third one is just not that good. I, I think it's no. just messy. And there's too many pieces of, like, trying to fit together. And, like, Sandman, a very interesting villain. I think visually his his attacks, like when he's robbing the, the truck, are very visually interesting. So good. The shadow first, right? Right. And so it's oh, like man. all of that works, but then just trying to mash all the different parts together. I think, you know, Eddie Brock would be and and, and Venom would be a fine movie, a fine villain. Harry has the whole, you know, trilogy. Of, of work to to go off of and i think just all three of them together it just kind of doesn't quite all the, the piece of uh pieces of the puzzle don't quite fit together but it's still fun and i think that's one of the best things you can say about these films is that they are fun they're fun to watch yeah i agree with just about everything you said i mentioned earlier that i like the first movie okay and I, I still enjoy it. I mean, it, it is what it is. I, I, I like it for what it is. I really enjoy the second movie. I think that's that's my favorite Spider-Man movie of all the ones we've seen so far. And for three, I think more than anything that it is just disjointed mm -hmm. because you have all of these plot points and characters, but not so much that you have all of them, but a lot of them, they're just dropped. Yeah. And then brought back just randomly. Right. So it's like this, if this was like a long form or even like a Netflix series that was they like six to eight episodes, it would probably work that way. But because it's a slightly longer film, I mean, this is the longest one of the trilogy by an extra like 17 minutes, uh, that it feels like, wait, well, huh? Where's Ven Where did Venom at? Where did he go? The Sam he was there and now it's not. And then all of a sudden they're back together. And then the ending is just atrocious <laughs> with the, you know, you got oh, this random exposition with the, you know, real life news guy. So I mean, he must have known somebody and he's well respected. That's great. Um, but just felt just off. In some ways, it I think it's a very similar problem to Rise of Skywalker mm -hmm. in that I think Rise of Skywalker probably had two films worth of plot points 
with enough breathing room and they squish it into one. And I yeah. kind of feel like this is the same situation where all three villains would be fine, but, you, but they need room to breathe. Right. And they don't have that room for the proper setup and payoff for all of them. And it just ends up suffering because they don't have all that. Yeah. It's going to be, you know, it's interesting that, you know, they were very much in pre-production on the fourth film, uh, very far along before it was abandoned. And so again, this feels kind of like a natural end, <laughs> but there was more to come. And so now we know, we know for a fact that we're going to see Doc Ock mm -hmm. and there's a poster out now that has, I won't get into it because I'm, keep some spoilers, you know, uh, under wraps, but we might actually get some resolution to some of these you know, these kind of lingering plot threads, like whatever happened to, to, to Peter Parker and Mary Jane? Did they get married? Did they stay together? Did Was he a jerk again? What happened? So, so I got to throw this out there that. because yeah. you remind me with um, No Way Home, because we're recording this, um, you know, when people come back years from now to re-listen to this episode. We recorded this before. <laughs> <laughs> we have not seen it. Um, I was watching Spider-Man 2, and of course we don't know. But it very much seems like uh, with Doctor Strange and Tom Holland's Spider-Man that there's going to be some multiverse magic going on. Um, there's a moment in Spider-Man 2 when the, the artificial sun is growing, right? And mm -hmm. Alfred Molina, he's kind of wavering because his his arms are damaged and stuff. And um, the, the camera focuses on the artificial sun. And I think Spider-Man says something like, you know, what was that? What's going on? There's some explosion or something. I think that moment when they're in that abandoned warehouse is when Doc Ock is going to be transported to Tom Holland's multiverse. That would be fun. I, I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, it's yeah. going to be some kind of portal. He's going to be sucked through uh, right in that moment. And that's it'll, it'll be interesting. It'd be a very interesting twist if... Alfred Molina gets stuck through at that time. And what if he's ends up being a good guy? Yeah. Like, everything's on the table. Because I'm pretty sure at that moment he's he basically gets his mind back, right? Octavius. Yeah. Yeah. And, he has a redemption arc. Right. And so it's like that would be a really interesting twist for this for No Way Home, is if he's actually uh back as Otto, right? Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see. And we don't have to wait very long. So that's that's exciting. As we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast catcher. We'd love to hear your feedback. And it really helps us get the word out about the podcast. And on that note, I just want to say thank you so much for the lovely five-star review from Sticky Panda 555 Thanks for listening. Hope you continue to listen and share with your friends. And we had a couple nice uh, hellos over the email from, forgive me for mispronouncing your name if I do, uh, Frias Michelle and Keth Honor. Uh, and if you haven't yet, guys, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies. And one final thing, our next episode will be a review of the amazing Spider-Man duology uh, from director Mark Webb. Send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from either of those two films, and we'll share them on the next episode.